Amen. All right. Well, hey, good morning once again and welcome. Uh, would you grab a Bible if you have one and join me in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, we were kicking off this series last week with verses 1 through 3, and so we're picking up where we left off. Verse 4, uh, my name is Matt, I'm one of the pastors here, and we just want to welcome you. We're so glad that you're with us at FBC, especially if you're here for the first time or a guest with us. Uh, we're continuing this sermon series, again, in the New Testament book of Acts. Acts not meaning what happens to you when you abruptly are fired from your job, and not like the slang term for a guitar, but Acts, A-C-T-S. This New Testament book today is week two of our study. And uh, let's pray together as we get going, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Acts and all that it teaches us. We pray now that by your spirit you would teach us. We come uh, with humble hearts and open hands to receive what you have for us, Lord. So would you take this time and shape us and help us understand what we read and may it grip our hearts. And would you do all that you want to do in us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, as we get started, just a reminder on the screen where the book of Acts sits in the story. It comes after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But then in the layout of the New Testament, it comes before the epistles. So we have the rest of the New Testament that are letters written to churches in different cities throughout the ancient world. But the book of Acts is unique in that it's not one of the four Gospels. But it's also not an epistle necessarily written to a specific church in Corinth or Rome or wherever else, but it's a unique history of the growth of the church. So it talks about how this movement of Jesus followers and the message of the gospel exploded and spread out throughout the ancient world. And we see lives changed and communities transformed and churches planted all throughout the ancient world. And so that's what the story of Acts is about. Last week we saw how uh, Acts is written by, or was written by, Luke. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke. Luke, the Gentile physician who traveled around with Paul the Apostle in the first century. And so Luke, Acts, is really this two-part work, a two-part book. Uh, and this is, again, kind of the, the sequel, you could say, to the Gospel of Luke, where we see all that Jesus is going to continue to do in the world through his church. Uh, there's so much for us to consider this morning, so we don't have time for a cute little humorous introduction story or anything like that, so we're just going to jump right into the text. Is that okay? All right. You just heard it. Uh, but here it again, verse 4. It says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. So still here as we're really in the introduction to the book, the very beginning, verses uh, 2 through 3, we saw Luke tell us about how Jesus was alive, right? Resurrected, and he showed himself to be alive with convincing proofs to his disciples. And then he taught them about the kingdom of God and gave them commands about what they were to do in the future and all that lied ahead. And now Luke zooms in on one of those occasions where Jesus is alive again with his disciples teaching them and we see what he says to them it's very interesting they're eating together and he gives them this command do not leave jerusalem 
but wait for the gift my father has promised. They're gathered there in the capital city, Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was arrested and crucified and resurrected, and they're told by Jesus to stay there. Don't leave. Now, slow down with me for a moment. Okay, if you know your Bible, uh, this is maybe a strange command at first glance. Because last week, we were talking about how the church is this global movement, right? And how the book of Acts is the story of how the church moves out from Jerusalem to the surrounding regions and cities. How the church is to live on mission and make disciples of all nations. And the gospel explodes out into the ancient world as lives and communities are transformed and churches are planted, all centered on the good news of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew, after all, ends with, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? Where we're told to what? Go and make disciples of all nations. We have it on our wall back there. Maybe you saw it when we came in, this commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. We have have work to do, right? We're to move out. We're to live on mission. But here, at the beginning of Acts, we don't read go, we read what? Stay. Matthew ends with go. The Gospel of Luke ends with wait and stay. Acts starts with wait and stay. Don't leave. Isn't that a little strange? I'm not suggesting contradiction here. I'm just saying there's more going on that we need to look at. Should we change our core commitments is basically my question. To worship, connect, grow, and stay. Worship, connect, grow. And then Jesus said stay. So let's not move out quite yet. I mean, there's work to do eventually, you know. But not yet. Let's just wait. Put your feet up. Have a good time. No, I think we should keep the go, and here's why. Um, Jesus says in verse 5, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so this is not an unending stay, wait forever. It's wait, stay, until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke 24, verse 49 says that the Holy Spirit will come. He was promised by the Father, and Jesus says He will clothe you with power. See, the person and work of the Holy Spirit is central to the book of Acts that we're going to explore in the weeks ahead a lot. But for now, just notice this simple truth with me. Jesus is saying, yes, there is a mission ahead. We are called to go, but Jesus is saying, don't even think about trying to do it on your own. He says, wait, stay here. You cannot move out without the Holy Spirit. See, in a few days from this event, Jesus says, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptized, immersed in, dunked in, you could say. The Holy Spirit will come in power. You won't be baptized with water, like John's baptism, the comparison is, right? Instead, it says what? You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In a few weeks, we'll read about, in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, how the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church there and upon the disciples. And we see how that empowers that for mission and all that that means for the followers of Jesus. But let's talk for a minute, if we could, about the Holy Spirit. Because we believe in one God, eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? And many of us are familiar with 
the Father. And of course, we talk and sing about the Son, Jesus, and all that He has done. But the Holy Spirit is perhaps a bit mysterious to us. How the Holy Spirit works and functions, what He is to do. <clears throat> we know He's there and important and mentioned. Definitely, He's invited you know, to the family gatherings. But we're not always sure exactly what He does. Pastor and author uh, Francis Chan, again, wrote a book years ago, I've mentioned this before, called Forgotten God. And the book was about the power of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit and his role and work within the church and how we, often in the American church, have forgotten who he is and what he is to do. So the Holy Spirit, let's remember, is God himself, the third person of the Trinity, equal in glory and divinity alongside the Father and the Son, and yet distinct from the Father and the Son, right? A distinct person. A person, not a force, not good vibes or vague spiritual energy, so to speak, but a, a person who speaks and acts, a, a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit was active throughout the Old Testament. If you were to, to flip through the Old Testament, you'd see it mentioning the Spirit of God in different times and in different ways. In the early chapters of Genesis, it mentions that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of creation. We see the Spirit coming upon the prophets, carrying them along as they speak the very words of God. We see the Holy Spirit anointing various kings and leaders for specific tasks. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon even those with uh, using their creativity and artistic work to, uh, to make the tabernacle and the temple look beautiful. The Holy Spirit was active, and yet he was selective in how and when he showed up. Jesus here, though, is speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit in a new way. One that the prophets in the Old Testament pointed forward to. Joel 2 talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the people of God. In John 14, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come and he will be with the disciples and will be in them. He will indwell them. And so we see in the scriptures this fundamental shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Meaning that now in the New Testament, followers of Jesus will receive the Holy Spirit. He will dwell within them. He will lead them into the truth. He will actually seal them and mark them and empower them and sanctify them and make them alive. Not just arriving at certain times in certain places for certain tasks, but upon all believers. Now, as we read Acts chapter 1, maybe a natural question is, hey, Jesus tells the disciples to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit before they move out on mission and serve God. And so maybe you hear that and you're wondering, does that apply to me? Do I need to wait before uh, I receive some gift, some baptism of the Spirit, some empowering that then I can go and serve God in a bigger way? Right? Have I had this experience, the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus is talking about? That's an important question for us. Because some, uh, and some movements within church history, would say that the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus is talking about here is some kind of second blessing, like a later experience. You know, you become a Christian, and then some of us will get this, you know, boost of the Holy Spirit experience down the road, depending on sanctification and so on. So you could be a Christian, but not be baptized in the Spirit as Jesus is talking about. Uh, some people believe that. I think 
the scriptures teach something different, however. I think the scriptures teach that really every Christian has been baptized by the Spirit. And a number of arguments that would point that way. First, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, to the church. He says, we were all baptized, we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body. He's speaking about the body of Christ, saying we were all baptized by the same Spirit. If you are a Christian, if you are a part of the body of Christ, you've been baptized by the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul is talking about how, how Christians have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they've received the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance, marking us as the children of God. And the key question in Ephesians chapter 1 is, when does that take place? When did that happen? When did we receive the Holy Spirit? Were we sealed with the Holy Spirit? And he says, it's when you believed. So you couldn't be a Christian if it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit. You couldn't trust in Christ if it weren't for the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and in your heart. And so all believers have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of God in our lives. Now, we can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can not walk in the fullness of the Spirit because of our sin or because of running the other direction. At times we can uh, kink the garden hose, so to speak, and cut off the power of the Holy Spirit at times. That's why you see commands in the New Testament to to walk in step with the Spirit, to be filled by the Spirit. Uh, We need to uh, invite and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we all, nonetheless, if you are a Christian have received the Holy Spirit and His power and presence in your life when you put your faith in Jesus. More on this to come, but but look with me what what all of this prompts. Jesus says, hey, you're going to be baptized with the Spirit. Look at the question in verse 6. It says, Then they gathered around Him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Interesting question, right? Jesus uh, has risen, and yet he's not yet ascended to heaven. And again, he's still teaching and walking with his disciples, and this teaching sparks a question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's a pretty reasonable question if we look at the context, because verse 3 tells us what Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom. And he now is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And those were both ideas, kingdom and spirit, both ideas that would have end times implications for the disciples. Those are things that the prophets uh, pointed forward to, the coming of the kingdom of God in full, the outpouring of the spirit of God, kind of at the end of all things. And so in their minds, this is like end times, uh, end of days sort of thing. The people of Israel had been waiting for the Messiah to come, right? And the Messiah was the one who would bring the kingdom of God. And the the reign of the Messiah was marked by uh, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And the Messiah would rule from Jerusalem on his throne. And he would restore the royal reign of the people of God among the nations. The people of Israel would be exalted and supreme and all nations would would flock to the temple and so on. So they're saying, hey, Jesus, I mean, you're the guy, right? You're the Messiah. You came and yeah, you suffered and died and were rejected. We didn't see that one coming. We were surprised by that. 
But you're alive again, victorious. So here we go. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is, is, is now the time where Israel will finally be supreme among the nations and will live happily ever after? You know? In the context of, of AD 30 or 33, uh, here when, when Judea is ruled by a Roman governor, <clears throat> Pontius Pilate, the people had these expectations that the Messiah is going to come and throw off the Romans and the people of God will rule themselves under the reign of their Messiah and these Roman overlords will, will get out of town and so on. <clears throat> it might sound a little strange to us that they were thinking that way, but it, it's hard for us to, to wrap our heads around truly how central their national and ethnic identity was uh, to their people. It's hard for us to grasp. And so to, to help, I want you to picture with me like the most patriotic person you know today. Okay, we all have that friend, okay, who probably has a mustache. And, and uh, Fourth of July is like their holiday, right? Like America, Fourth of July. Maybe they have some like, you know, American flag tattoos. Um, they, they own a bald eagle as a pet, you know, that sort of thing. Like picture the most patriotic person. Now, believe me, uh, I... Nothing wrong with patriotism. Love our country. Grateful to live here. Absolutely. But you know, we all have that friend, right? Fourth of July, America, right? That's them. Now imagine that person and multiply their patriotism by like a thousand. And, and that's the level of like national pride and identity that, that the Jews as the people of God, uh, the people of Israel would feel. There was just this deep, strong sense of nation and identity because wrapped up in that was not just, not just politics and, and geography and, you know, borderlines and so on. Uh, it was, uh, again, also faith and, and, and worship. And it was about their God and about salvation and eternity. There was so much wrapped up in it. And so it's a natural question for them. Jesus, is, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? We see Jesus' response. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus responds by, by saying, Guys, fair question, that's fine, but it's not for you to know the times and dates that the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, God, the Father, in his sovereignty, has determined the timing of such things and the events of history and the, the end of all things and when it is to come. And it's not for you, disciples, to know. They're asking, is this it, Jesus? Are you going to restore the kingdom? Off into eternity we go. And he says, it's not for you to know. In other words, don't worry about that, the timing of it all. Side note then, uh, if anyone today claims to know the times or dates that the Father has set for the end of history. They don't know what they're talking about. Do not believe them. Please. I mean, every time I see, we, we all, you've seen these people, right? Every, every time I see someone predicting the end times, we did the math and calculated the date, and we know when Jesus is coming back. Every time I see that, I want to beat them with a stick and just say, just stop it. Don't do that. It's, it couldn't be clearer in Scripture. Jesus says here and elsewhere, actually, it's, it's not for you to know the times 
and date. So don't, don't worry about it. Stop it, he says. May, May 21st, 2011 was one of the recent ones. you guys remember that one? Return of Jesus, end of the world, May 21st, 2011. Um, it didn't happen, of course. And so Jesus said, hey, our, our job isn't to calculate the date and lose sleep worrying about that. Uh, instead, our job is what? It's to live with a sense of urgency, passionately being about the Lord's business until he comes again, whenever that may be. We're to be ready for the Lord's return, passionately about his business, looking for him to return. Uh, John Wesley, famous preacher, theologian, founder of the, the, the Methodist movement back in 1700s, I believe, was asked once, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Like, if you knew this was your last day, it's about to be kingdom come, off into eternity we go, uh, how would you spend your last day? And he, he looked down at his schedule, his kind of, you know, planner mapped out for the day ahead. And he said, well, I would spend it just as I intend to spend it now. So I want to change a thing. Because for him, each day was already to be spent passionately pursuing the Lord's business. Each day he was to be ready for the return of the Lord, urgently loving his family and his neighbors and sharing the gospel and making disciples because time is short. So I don't need to know the time or dates. I just need to live urgently with this end in view that the Lord will return. So I'm going to be about his business until he comes back each day. So Jesus to his disciples, hey, don't worry about that. What I want you to worry about instead or focus on is your work to be done. There's work to be done, right? There's a mission ahead. Verse 8, right? It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The message of the gospel is to be taken to the ends of the earth. The church is to take the gospel to the whole world, that, that all people everywhere would hear about Jesus and his life, his death and resurrection, that all people would be invited to put their faith in Jesus as Savior and follow him as Lord and receive the forgiveness of their sins and receive new life that can be found in Jesus alone, that, that all people would be invited to trust in Christ and thus be reconciled to the God who loves them and invited into the family of God, that they would hear of God's great love for the world and that he would send his son to be a sacrifice of atonement for us. So that's the mission ahead. So don't worry about the, calculating the times and dates. I want you to go and take the gospel to all the world. And notice that the disciples have this narrow parochial attitude about them, don't they? They're thinking about here and us and, and the kingdom of Israel. But that's what even say, not, they're not talking about the kingdom of God. Are you going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? Even in their language, they're saying it's about us and here and, and our people. And Jesus is saying, hey, actually the mission is to the ends of the earth. All nations, all people. They're thinking about insiders. And Jesus is saying, I want you to think about outsiders. They're thinking about, hey, it's time to get rid of the Romans and show that we're better than and we're, we're supreme over those who are far from God. 
And Jesus says, hey, your job is to reach those who are far from God. The whole point is that you would bring them and invite them in, that they would know God. Friends, the church must constantly fight this temptation to turn inward and make it about us and our comfort and our preferences. So tempting to forget the mission. And it's ironic because every one of us are glad and grateful that the church welcomed us with open arms, right? Uh, We're glad that we were welcomed in, that the church had had room for us, you could say. But now that we're here, we're like, you know, maybe we should just turn inward a little bit. Maybe we should start thinking about about here a little more. Now now that I'm here, thanks for for making room for me. Now let's kind of maybe just close the doors a little bit and make sure that our needs are met here. In small groups, this happens. In community groups. Sometimes community groups can be so life-giving. There's so much joy that we say, we got to protect this. I'm so glad the group was open, but now I'm here. I think we're kind of full. Not sure we have more room. And again, I'm glad the doors were open when I came around, but now, I don't know, let's start thinking about here a little more. Don't we have that temptation? We can't just take for granted that the church is, is mobilized on mission and in our hearts ready to move out and love people. It's complicated and messy and difficult and disruptive sometimes to invite more people in to the life of the church and yet it's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. And we can't just assume that the church is always ready for this. We need to move towards this and pray towards this and act towards this. I'm thinking about famous missionary William Carey, again, also back in the 1700s, went to India as a missionary to share the gospel and translate the Bible. And at first, he met resistance um, from his peers back in England and was told not to go. Uh, They weren't sure it was his responsibility or their responsibility to to make disciples of all nations. I mean, sure, the apostles were sent out with that commission in the New Testament, but does that really apply to us? way out here today. And so he had to argue his case and, and, and push back and say, no, we actually have to do this. And he wrote a little pamphlet. You're going to love the title uh, that he shared with his peers. He said, it's an inquiry, this is the title of it, into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. William Carey. Isn't that a great title? Uh, I, I share this for a couple of reasons. First, because it's hilariously clunky and strange um, of a, a title for modern ears, right? Some of us maybe are just offended even reading that. The conversion of the who? And I, I want to recommend referring to your neighbors or whatever as the heathen. Um, but it, I just got a chuckle when I read that. Um, I do applaud, though, his heart, right, to reach all people with the gospel. But my point in sharing this title is that, look, it's an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means, to do whatever we can to reach people with the gospel. He he had to push and fight, saying, you know, we have an obligation as the people of God to bring this message to all people everywhere, to make disciples, to be witnesses of who Jesus is and what he has done, that all people everywhere would hear about the love of God and salvation found in Christ and in him alone. Similarly today, we need to constantly work to regain this uh, this heart of missions to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
So I ask you, how big is your vision of God's kingdom? How big is your vision of God's kingdom? Are you content to say, ah, we're full. Let's turn inward. Let's care more about, about our needs. Or do you share the heart of Jesus to say there's a mission to see that the kingdom is truly global to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that all people will come to worship Jesus and him alone and find life in him, eternal life that can only be found in him. Now, Acts 1 verse 8 is really a summary statement for the whole book. Uh, It summarizes, really, if you had to pick one verse in the book that captures the theme of the book, it's Acts 1.8, how Jesus empowers his disciples with the Holy Spirit, and they are to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And even the layout, uh, it talks about, right, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's kind of like a rough outline of how the book unfolds. It talks about how the disciples are witnesses in Jerusalem, and all that happens there is they're sharing the gospel, and in then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, as churches are planted throughout um, the Mediterranean world. And so if you ever forget what the book is about, Acts 1, verse 8, come back to it, and it'll, it'll tell you. Now, but look with me again at, at what the key is. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, and so on. So again, we're talking about the Holy Spirit who empowers us for mission. We're called to go, but we don't go alone. We have this supernatural power from God for, for everyday people like us. And, and too often we, we assume that, that evangelism or discipleship or, or reaching people with the gospel or transformation or life change or whatever is up to us and our cleverness or our wisdom or our programs or our wit or our uh, music in the church service or our own power or whatever. It's up to the church's presentation and aesthetics. We've got to get everything right and hope that all the dots align so that someone would respond. But Jesus reminds us it's not up to any of those things. It's not any of those things that, that transform hearts, that, that, that brings new life. No, it's the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do this work, can reach people, can change hearts. So it says the Holy Spirit will empower you for this. The Holy Spirit will give you the boldness to share the gospel without fear. The Holy Spirit will, will convict those who hear to repent and respond to the gospel. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now notice a key reality of this text. This verse is not actually a command. It's a promise. You know, so it's not an imperative. It's not, hey, go and be my witnesses. It's, you will be my witnesses. It's a promise. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. And you will be my witnesses. I think what we often do is we read it as a command. And, um, And I read it this way at first. Telling us to go and be his witnesses. Until I studied it and someone pointed out, hey, it's actually a promise. Think about the the difference there, the implications. He's saying when the Holy Spirit enters your life, he will naturally lead you to be a witness for Jesus. He will 
make you a witness. You will share the gospel. You will point others to Jesus. And so if it's a command, it's maybe more about working up the energy to do it or trying really hard to make it happen. But instead, as a promise, it's saying, here's what's naturally going to happen in your life if you yield to the Spirit. Think about like a river. A river, uh, as we know right now, is going to flow. <laughs> okay, rain and creeks and all, all the deal, right? A river is going to flow. You don't have to do anything to make the river flow, do you? You don't need to conjure up the strength and like get out there and get with a paddle and like, come on, river, you're going to go. No, the river flows. What you can do is you can build dams. Uh, you can try and block the river. You can put things in the way of the water to stop its flow. But the key uh, with the river is that that's just what it does. It, it flows. And so the key then for us is then, uh, instead of thinking, about, I need to conjure up the energy and the strength to be a witness, saying, this is how the Holy Spirit is naturally going to lead me as long as I'm not putting barriers in the way. So the question is, what are the barriers that I've put up between me and evangelism? What are the things that hinder me from doing what God wants to already naturally do through me? I mean, think about it. If your heart has been transformed by the gospel, you've been transformed by an encounter with Jesus, he's saved you from your sin and death and judgment, he's made you alive, and your heart has been gripped by the truth of the gospel, you have this new life in him, you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you naturally will want to share that. Like naturally, that will bubble up and overflow out of your heart. How could it not? So Tim Keller gave this talk on evangelism. Some of you have heard it. We've looked at it together at at times. Um, And he said, hey, when it comes to evangelism and being a witness for Jesus, sharing the gospel, uh, it doesn't come down to necessarily any sort of like slick strategy, some like marketing campaign or some like tips and tricks out there you need to master. His point is says, you need to just go and be friends with people. And here's his point. It's really about confrontations on the street corner, although sometimes that happens, but it's more about people in your family and in your neighborhood and people at your school or people that you work with who know you and you have an opportunity to share life with them. And his point is that in true friendship, you share about what you care about, right? If you're really friends with someone, don't you talk about things that matter to you and you want to hear about things that matter to them? If you're really a friend, don't you talk about things that you love? If you're really a friend with someone, don't you want to be seen for who you really are? And don't you want to hear who they truly are? So in friendship, the goal is simply just don't hide who you are. Go be friends with people and talk about what you love and listen well to them and love them, of course, but share what matters to you. So if you're a Christian and you're not sharing your faith and you're not talking about Jesus, maybe it's not about like trying harder and get to work and do more. Maybe it's just about not hiding who you are when you're around non-Christians. We live in a world where our culture celebrates authenticity right? Like, just be yourself. And whatever is in your heart is like, let it, you know, flood out and tell everyone about it. Unless it's that Jesus stuff. Then you keep that to yourself, all right? 
Really? I mean, everything is like, hey, celebrate who you are. That's our culture saying that. Like, let's just celebrate whatever you are. Tell people about it. And so maybe it's time for Christians likewise to just be like, I'm going to let people see me for who I truly am and let the Lord use that. You'll be my witnesses, he says. Think about it, what does a witness do? A, a witness is someone who speaks of what they have seen and heard, who gives a testimony. It's really a legal term in, before a court. A witness says, yeah, I saw this. I experienced this. This happened. Jesus says, you're to be my witnesses. You're going to tell people about who I am and what I've done. The Greek word is martyros, which is where we get the word martyr. Um, witnesses don't always get killed, but sometimes they do. Uh, but witnesses speak from personal experience. Man, I think about uh, the men's breakfast yesterday. If you were, if you were there, man, what a, what a gift it was to hear Frankie's testimony. Frankie, you're so encouraging, brother, to hear you share about what God has done in your life, how Jesus has transformed your life and your heart. Now you were dead in your sin and under judgment and separated from God and your life was a mess and then you met Jesus and it changed everything. Man, I hope you guys got to hear it yesterday. It was so good. This is this testimony of here's who Jesus is and what he's done in my life and the difference he's made. It's powerful. Because here's the deal. Sometimes as witnesses... There's a technical side of this where we do share the facts and the details of history. And here's what Jesus did. And he, he lived and he died and he, and he rose again for our sins. And we share that message. Absolutely. But with that also then is the personal testimony of, of the difference he's made in our life. I think about John chapter 9. There's this scene where Jesus heals a blind man. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders get all upset about it. And they go and grill the man who got healed. And they're like, who healed you? And, and what's his name? And, and who is he? And what do you have to say about that? And I think he did it on the Sabbath. And, and you weren't supposed to do that. And they're just grilling him. And he ultimately gets to a place where he says, look, guys, I don't have all the answers to your questions. But here's what I do know. I was blind and now I can see. So, yeah, I don't know the deep theological insights or questions that you're asking me. But I know, I know that. I was blind and now I can see. And for some of us, that's going to be our testimony. We may not all be Bible scholars or, or Bible teachers or, or preachers or experts in apologetics and doing Q&A or in debates on a college campus or, or whatever, but we can share with those in our lives, hey, I was blind and now I can see. I was dead and, and, and Jesus made me alive. So I don't have all the answers, but I know I've been transformed by this Jesus. Look, I don't have all the, the answers to your, your questions, skeptic. But, but I do know that, that, that I, was, I was crushed with fear and anxiety. And I was in despair. And I was alone and I was angry and I was bitter and I was far from God and I was empty and I was needy. But now I, I met this Jesus and I've experienced the love of God and the grace of God, and the forgiveness of God, and the mercy of God. And he's given me what I did not deserve. And he's given me this peace. And he's given me this joy in my heart that I can't explain. And all I know is it's because I met this Jesus. So Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Uh, I'm going to empower you by the Holy Spirit. And the world's going to see and hear who I am through you.
We have a chance to respond now, church, by taking communion together, remembering Jesus. Uh, When we take communion, uh, we take these simple elements, the bread and the cup, representing his, his body and blood, broken and shed for us on the cross. I actually left my packet down here, so I'm going to come join you for a minute. We do this twice a month as a church family to remember the gospel. Jesus told us to do this, to take these elements, to remember his work. Uh, we practice an open table here at FBC, which, which means um, even if you're visiting, uh, even if this isn't your home church or you're from out of town or you're not a member or whatever, um, if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate uh, as an act of worship. If you're not sure if that's you, if you're not a Christian, you can simply leave the elements there on the seat. Uh, but we invite Christians to participate as an act of worship and remembrance. So I'm, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take the elements together. Father, we thank you for your great love that we were, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but you made us alive through the work of Christ. We thank you for the gospel, which is not that, that we loved you, but that you loved us and sent your son to be this atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus, we, we thank you that your body was broken and your blood was shed for us. We thank you that you, you so loved the world that you would give yourself so that we could be forgiven and saved. And so, God, we take these elements as a reminder of these truths of the gospel. And we pray that this act would glorify you, that, that, that taking these elements would, would humble us, would encourage us, edify us, reminding us that we belong to you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.